I love Christmas, right? I, I love Christmas time. I love, I love singing the Christmas carols. I, I can't get enough of it when we start singing them together. And it's, it's awesome to it's like look around the room a little bit. Like, there's, there's, there's something about singing Christmas carols that just kind of brings out this little, little glow in all of us a little bit more, I think. I, I love the, the Christmas lights. I was really bummed that it rained all day Friday for the canopy of lights thing. And so our family didn't go down to, to participate in that because we didn't really want to drown out on the street. Uh, it was really nasty. Um, but, but we've driven down and we've seen them and, and such. But uh, love, I love the lights. I love the, the get-togethers with family, with friends, uh, just celebrating. I love all the delicious treats that my wife makes, as you can tell. Um, right? Um, it, it's a dreamy, happy kind of time. I, I love it. But in so many ways, with all the depth of meaning of what Christmas is really all about, uh, I think sometimes in all of that, that, all those good things I just mentioned, right, we, we settle for too little. Right? We, we settle for too little. Those are good, but they're too little compared to what the depth of the real, true meaning of Christmas really is. It's almost like we, we come before the depth of, of all that Christmas means, and, and it kind of brushes up against us, but we just don't quite grasp it. Right? Uh, there's so much to it. Um, Dave did an uh, excellent job, for those of you who weren't here last week, he, he opening and kicking off this, the season of Advent, right? And the season of Advent, what we're talking about, Advent, the word means coming, right? And we celebrate the first Advent of Christ, his first coming when he was born as a baby in, in, in Bethlehem. And we also look forward to his second Advent, that he will truly, surely return uh, to renew and restore all things. And so that's, that's what we're doing. And Dave did a great job just kind of kicking that off by helping us look at the promise of Christ, from Genesis chapter 12 and, and the promise that, that God gives Abraham that through him, through his offspring, will come a blessing to all nations. And of course, that's, that's Christ. That's Jesus Christ. Um, he really did a great job of helping us kind of come awake a little bit last week to, to this depth of meaning that I'm talking about. And for the next three weeks of Advent, we're going to be looking at the first chapter of uh, the gospel uh, according to John. Right, John's Gospel, John chapter 1. And, and here's why. Uh, the beginning of Matthew and Luke's Gospels, they both do a, a brilliant, excellent job of, of sharing the, the story of Christmas, if you will. Right? The facts of Christmas. What, what happened, right? That we have, we have angels, we have shepherds, we have a baby in a manger, all that. Right? They tell us what happened. But what John does, John doesn't talk about any of that. Right? John doesn't talk about any of that. What John does is he tells us, why that's so important. Why is this so significant that this baby was born in Bethlehem? He gets at the meaning why Christmas happened, why it matters. And hopefully it will help us continue to get out of Christmas what we really ought to get from it. Uh, there are those uh, of us this time of year and really throughout all the time, right? We feel pretty, uh, pretty self-sufficient, right? I mean, I, I definitely... I can be prone to just just fall right into that. Like, right, I, I, I have an income, I have a house, I have a family, we have food on the table, you know. I, I can take care of things. I feel self-sufficient, right? For example, Christmas time, right, and this is not a true story, but this could be a true story of someone, right? So I, I go into, uh, you know, I, I, I go to the store, I, I pull into Target, right, front row spot at Target. I go in and I'm wanting to get this toy for, for my son. 
It's a toy that's sold out everywhere, but I walk in the store, I come up to the shelf, and there is one right there for me to just take, and it's half off, right? It's on sale, and then I take that toy, I walk up to the the counter, and there's no line at Christmas, right? That never happens. There's no line. I just walk right up. I pay in cash because there's that extra special, generous Christmas bonus that my employer gave me. And so I'm able to just pay in cash. And then I walk right out the door. And what happens? My front row parking spot, the, the guy on the other side has pulled out and I can do the pull through, right? That's like <laughs> dreams come true. The pull through. I love it. Um, I don't have to back out, right? You can leave that and you can think, man, I got this, right? Things are going well for me. But if you really think about that, how much of that did you really make happen? Right? We, we fall into this illusion of self-sufficiency. Right? We make things happen. But then on the other side of the spectrum, there are those who feel, that the, especially at this time of year, I think everything gets exaggerated. Right? Absolutely overwhelmed by the circumstances of life. By, by sorrow and sadness and depression, right? There's a, a real desperation and anxiety. Like, nothing's going right, right? Instead of the generous Christmas bonus, I got a pay cut or worse, right? I lost my job. And then the furnace went out, right? You know, circumstances can, can really drive us down, especially, I think, sometimes at this time of year. And, and you... you uh, you can also see that this time of year also triggers a lot of deep pain, a deep sorrow, thinking about past pain and trauma. You know, grief is heightened. As we come to the holidays and we, we remember, oh, the loved ones, they're not here. Those loved ones we so desperately miss are, are not with us this Christmas, right? It, it can be a very, very difficult, difficult time. And so for most of us, I think we find ourselves kind of somewhere in between the, that spectrum, and, some, and probably for a lot of us, we, we bounce between the two, right? Some days we're feeling a little more self-sufficient. Some days we're just really overwhelmed, right? But when we, if we truly come up against the real meaning of Christmas, it speaks to us no matter where you're at. It speaks to you no matter where you're at on that spectrum this morning. Whether you're drowning in the illusion of your self-sufficiency or in your anxiety-ridden hopelessness. Christmas comes and shows us that we are both far worse off than we thought we were, but we are also far more loved than we ever dared to dream, right? That's what Christmas shows us. When we truly gaze at the meaning, we see the hope of Christ. We see the hope of Christ, real hope, not hope like, I hope the Cubs win the World Series, Cubs fans, right? And maybe, maybe in the next couple years, that'll be a real hope. But like hope, like in the Bible, hope, right? A sure thing. This will happen, right? Real, sure, true hope that we desperately need, whether we think we do or not. That's what we see in our text today, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. If you'd uh, turn there in your Bibles, uh, the page numbers, I believe, should be up here soon. Um, And let's stand together and let's read from God's Word. If not, maybe there are I lied to you. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for this time to gather and to dig into your word. And I do pray, Lord, that you would help us not just brush up against the, the, the depth of what Christmas means this morning, but you would help us to get a little bit of a grasp. That you would help us to really see the hope of Christ. To see how it, it relates to us personally. How it, it moves us to, to worship you. To love others. To serve. To be a blessing. An ambassador of yours. To the city. To this world. Lord would you have your way with us this morning. It's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. So John, in this, in this first chapter, he's, he's going to give us kind of the meaning, right? The meaning behind the events of Christmas, if you will. Why is the birth of Jesus so significant? Why does his birth mark this turning point in history? Why is it significant for you, personally, for me? John, in these opening verses, is addressing those questions, and he's showing us why there's hope because of Jesus' first advent, his first coming. And what he shares here also gives us a sure hope that there will be a second advent, that he will return. And John really focuses on these first five verses, uh, the, the foundation of that hope being who Jesus is. The truth about who is the Christ. Who is Jesus? Who is this baby, right? Who's this man? And John tells us that there is hope in knowing Jesus is the eternal word, Hope and knowing that Jesus is the eternal word. John tells us that that Jesus is the word. Verse 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. A little later in in chapter 1, John's going to very explicitly say, Jesus is the word. Right? He doesn't explicitly say it in the first five verses. But if you look down verses 14 through, or excuse me, yeah, 14 through 18, he explicitly lays out, I'm talking about Jesus. Jesus is the word, right? And what does he say? Jesus is the word. He's the word. In the beginning was the word. So not like in the beginning, like going back to the, the, the manger scene. Not like in the beginning, going back to the angels coming to visit Mary and tell her it, uh, uh, that you will have a baby, right? But going back to the beginning, in the beginning before the earth was created, before anything was made, there was the word, Right? There was the word. There was Jesus. He is eternal. The eternal word. He's pre-existent. He wasn't just born in Bethlehem and then exists beyond that. He has always been. He has no beginning. He has no end. He always is. Right? He's the word. And the word was with God. And when you dig into the Greek here, it's really, this word with is really like toward God. And it's saying that there's this, this great intimacy between God the Father and the Word, the eternal Word, Jesus Christ. This, this incredible connection, God and the Word. Right? And then it says the Word was God. Right? That he, Jesus is God. And so this is like confusing for some of us. Maybe for some of you, you're coming in and this is the first time you've been in a church gathering or whatever. And you're like, wait, I thought Christians worshipped one God. I thought they're monotheists here. What we're talking about, there's multiple gods now? And, and, and no. That we worship one God. We worship one God who is Trinity, a triune God. 
the Trinity, doctrine of the Trinity, that we worship one God who is made up of three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are each fully and equally God, who exist in this eternal relationship of perfect love and worship and adoration. God is a community. He's one God, but he's three. It's a really hard doctrine to explain. There's no great illustrations for the Trinity. The closest one I get to with my kids, and it's not perfect, it's not a good one necessarily, is when you know, one of my kids comes up and asks uh, me if they can have something, or they ask, they ask mom, Crystal, first, hey, can I have this? And she says no. And then they come and they ask me, like, there's going to be a different answer. And I tell them, well, what did mom say? Well, she said no. No, right? You know why? Because your mom and I, we're one now. We got married. We became one flesh. You were two distinct people. We have different personalities. Like those of you who really, you know us, like if you've seen us for like five seconds, you know that, right? (laughs) We're very different people, but we're one. We're one. We're on the same team here. So mom says no, I say no because we're together. That's the best I could do to kind of explain that. But God is Trinity. Father, Son, Jesus, the Son, the Word, right? He is God. If you think about it, a person's word is really the clearest and ultimate revelation of who they are. Is it not? So say, for example, there's, there's, this, there's this, this lady, friend, a friend, you're wanting to meet this person. And, and you, don't, you know her a little bit, but you don't know her super well, right? And, and you're like, well, she drinks coffee sometimes, but she also drinks tea sometimes, so I guess she likes both. I think I'm going to have her over. What are you going to do? Are you going to just put out coffee and tea? Is that what you're going to do? Well, I think she likes both. I'll just make both. I'll put them out. No, I don't think that's what we would do. What you would do is you'd say, hey, would you like coffee or would you like tea? What do you prefer? I want to have you over. Would you, would you like coffee? Would you like tea? And then she tells you, well, I only drink coffee when I have to. I really prefer tea. Right? You see, you can make a lot of inferences about a person by what you see, but when their word tells you, that's the full revelation. Then you really know. You really know. Right? Another example. Right? You and I, we walk around town, we go to the grocery store, you go to class, I go to work, we, we go to the coffee shop. There are people that, you no doubt, you see routinely in some of those patterns of your life. People who you see at the store, you see walking across campus, you see walking downtown or at the coffee shop, and you don't know them. If you're my wife, you probably do know them. You go and you talk to them. Um, I don't do that as much. Um, I'm a little more introverted sometimes um, and, and so so you see them and you can make you can make inferences about who, the, who they are right you can you can infer that well they, they they have this facial expression or I see them reading this book or I see them dressed this way I can make some assumptions about this is kind of who that person is but if you ask me or if I asked you about those people in your life do you know them well if, if they've never spoken to you and you've never spoken to them Right, the answer is no, right? You don't know someone. You know about someone, but you don't know them. They don't know you. You would say no to that because you haven't spoken with them. The word, right? It really reveals so much, right? It's the full revelation, the ultimate expression of, of who you are, the clearest one. And when it says that Jesus Christ is the word of God, right? And again, it, John is explicit later in the chapter. When it says that, this is an amazing statement. You know, this, this is amazing. What he's saying is, you can't know God without Jesus. 
You can't really know God. Right? Now, now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying you can't know some things about God. You can't know some things about what he said or what he did or, or anything like that um, without Jesus. You can't have some idea, ideas about you know, what you should do um, you know, uh, for God. But you don't really know God unless you know Jesus Christ. Right? Unless you've, you've talked to them. Right? You've gazed into him. To know him, it takes Christ. The ultimate, the complete revelation of who God is. Some of you may be here and you may be like, you know, I need, I need that slam dunk, just watertight argument proof that Jesus is God. Right? Until I have that, I'm not sure. Right? I need, I need proof that Christianity is true. I need the watertight slam dunk argument that this is true before I really want to consider, before I really want to look at Christ. And I would say that that is the wrong way to go. That's absolutely the wrong way to go. And I'll give you a couple reasons. Right? To pursue that slam dunk watertight argument is to go down the wrong path. And here's why. Philosophy 101. Right? This is reason number one. Philosophy 101. You ever taken a philosophy class? Well, pretty, pretty quickly in that class, the professor is going to break down. Right? There are no slam dunk watertight arguments for anything. Right? Nothing. You can't, you can't make that argument that anything is true. Because you know why? Because all of those arguments eventually come back to my own cognitive abilities, my own cognitive capacities. And the philosophy professor will say, well, how do you know that your cognitive capacities are working right? How do you know that they're not deceived? Right? You're making decisions based on these assumptions that we all have. We all do this, right? And so to say, I'm looking for the rational, just slam dunk argument is, is, to, is to chase I mean, it's just to chase something we can't catch. Right? It's just not possible. Right? Your cognitive abilities at some point, you can't prove that they're working because what are you going to use to prove that they're working? Your cognitive capacities. Right? You're going to use those. That's what you would use. And so you're trying to prove the thing with the thing that you're trying to prove. Do you see? That's what the philosophy professor, he'll take you down that, that rabbit hole and then pff, mind's blown, Right? <laughs> right? And so here's, here's what I would say. At a certain point when someone says, I want a slam dunk argument that proves that Christianity is true, this is what you can say. Why are you doubting? Why do you doubt? That's a fair question. Right? Why are you doubting? And they'll likely tell you because of this and this and this and this and this, right? whatever their reasons might be. And usually if someone says that, they're assuming for themselves certain other beliefs that they don't have watertight arguments for either. Do you understand what I'm saying? Are we still like in the matrix? Um, inception, I don't know. Uh, right? The philosophy will, professor will tell you that this is not the way to go. Right? This is not the way to go. There are plenty of reasons for us to believe what we believe, okay? I'm not saying that. But there are no slam dunk watertight arguments for anything. But that's not even the real reason why you shouldn't go down that road. Here's the real reason. The text is telling us that God has spoken to us rationally. In verse 1, when it, says, when it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Do you know what that Greek word is for, for word? I know some, that you, some of you do. It's the Greek word logos. 
right? Or Logos if you're the Bible software company, right? <laughs> Lagos, right? Which is the word from which we get our word logic. Logic. So what does it mean that Jesus is the logic of God? He's the logic of God. Here's the answer to that question. God has not given us a watertight argument to prove Christianity is true. He has given us a watertight person. A watertight person. And that's not anti-rational, right, to say that. What, what it means is that Jesus is a watertight person, that he is the compelling proof that God exists, that he is God, that Christianity is true. If you want to know, right, if you want to know, you want to search, you have to look at Jesus. You have to look at the accounts of his life. You have to study his life. You have to look at what he said, what he claimed, You have to look at the claims that he made. You have to look at what he did. You have to compare those claims to the way he lived. You have to examine that. You have to look at the accounts of his resurrection. You have to study that. You have to see the effects of his resurrection on many, 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 many people through many, many years. You have to look at that. You have to use your mind. You have to think. You have to decide, what do I do with this? What do I do with this? What do do I do with that? How do I explain that? And I would say to you that if you're willing to do that, if you're willing to do that with an open mind, to look at Christ, to study his life, to look at all that he said, all that he did, you will find in the end that Jesus Christ is a watertight person, a slam dunk against whom in the end there can be no argument. Because he's perfect. He is God. He's perfect. Perfection. His life towers above everything else. If you want to know God, you want to know if he's real, you need to look at Jesus. It can only happen through the word. Because that's how people work. That's how we reveal ourselves. That's how you know people through their word. Jesus is the word, the ultimate and clearest revelation of who God is. And that gives us hope. Right? That gives us hope. Hope that Jesus wasn't just a good person, another good prophet, another good teacher, some good guy who was born in Bethlehem 2,000 plus years ago. But rather, he's the eternal word of God. The word made flesh come to dwell among us. And John continues this focus on the divinity of Christ and who he really is by showing this, that there is hope in knowing Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all things. Right? In, in many ways, the opening verses of John are a, a direct echo of Genesis chapter 1. Right? These opening words. It's, I mean, it's not coincidence that John begins with the three words, in the beginning. Right? The same three words that start out Genesis 1 1. In the beginning. He's, he's connecting those two on purpose here. And the connection is made even stronger in verse 3. Look with me again. He says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Right? All things were made through Jesus. Jesus is the Word of God, at, present at creation, eternally existent, who spoke everything into being. Right? God didn't use his hands to make almost everything that he made, say for man. He spoke and it was. By his word, 
right? Jesus is the word that spoke all things into existence, into being. And John's statement about the word making all things that have been made is in step with Genesis, that God created everything out of nothing, right? Out of nothing. Like it wasn't some pre-existing materials that he put together and built everything, right? Out of nothing. He spoke and it was. For example, Genesis 1, 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. He just spoke it. And it was. To reinforce the extent of what he's saying here about Jesus as the creator of all things, John not only says that all things were made through him, but he says it a second time in a negative way. And without him was not anything made that was made. Nothing exists apart from Jesus. Right? Doesn't have to worship him, but nothing exists apart from him. And this is the greatness of Christ. He is the creator of all things. The creator of Not just a baby. The creator, God in the flesh. And through Jesus all things exist, whether planets or physics, music or minerals. Everything exists because of him. Not only is he the creator, but he's also the sustainer of all things. This is what uh, John's getting at in verse 4. When he says, in him was life. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. Jesus is the life giver. He is the life giver. All life derives from him. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Acts 17, 28. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. He's the sustainer of life. Here's the point. Jesus isn't just a part of creation. He didn't just enter the universe at his birth in the manger. He has always been. He towers above above all, and he cannot be reduced to just one of a series. Oh, he's just another prophet in a long line of prophets. That's what Islam would say about Jesus. He's a great prophet, but he's not the ultimate prophet. He's just one of a series. You know, many people today, Jesus, great teacher, one of many great teachers. He can't be reduced to just one of a series. He is not dependent upon the world or anything else for anything, right? Rather, the world and everything in it is fully dependent upon him for its existence, That illusion of self-sufficiency, right? That illusion. It's just that, an illusion. We are not self-sufficient. Everything hinges on Christ. Everything rests on him. Stephen Hawking, right, the, the theoretical physicist, cosmologist, and atheist, once said in one of his books, the eventual goal of science is to provide a single theory that describes the whole universe. And what John is saying here in these opening verses of John is that theory is a person. That theory is a person. His name is Jesus. Jesus Christ, the creator and the sustainer of all things. The fact that Jesus is the eternal word, the creator, sustainer, that gives us tremendous hope. Why? Because he's not just a man. He's fully God and fully man born that day in Bethlehem. He's not just a prophet or some teacher. He's God in the flesh Right, The eternal word that spoke all into being. I can't say it any better than what Paul says in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, Jesus, and for him, Jesus. 
And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of everything. And this points, this declares his greatness, his glory. It demands our worship. He made us. He made everything. It demands our worship. It demands a response. And there's sure hope because of this. There's hope in knowing Jesus has come. This gives us hope in knowing that Jesus has come. Think on that for a minute. The eternal word. The creator. The sustainer is born a helpless baby in a barn, a stinky, smelly, nasty, dirty barn. God made man humbly in those means. The word became flesh. That's the meaning of Christmas. It's not, it's not primarily, I mean, the good things, right? It's not really about family. It's not really about parties. It's not really about presents. It's about the word becoming flesh, the word becoming vulnerable, the word becoming killable, God becoming killable. The hope of Christmas begins with this understanding that you are far worse than you ever thought you were. You're far worse off than you ever thought you were. We are. Self-sufficiency, illusion, right? And even in our desperation, our anxiety, we fail to grasp really the true desperate condition of our soul. How desperate we really are. How, how deeply in need of rescue we really are because of our sin. Like another week and yet another tragedy in the world with the, the mass shooting in San Bernardino, uh, California this week. Right? And I know you and I, when you read that news, you hear that news, you see it on TV, there's a grief that comes over you, right? Because of tragedy, because of of evil. And if you or I were to experience tragedy like that, and perhaps some of you have experienced tragedy to that kind of level, to to have your your parents or a spouse or a child to be a victim of, of some kind of act like that, Some kind of wicked, evil, just brutal murder. Brutal suffering. When something that serious, that tragic is done to you, there's an enormous gap that develops between you and the perpetrator of that evil. An enormous gap that comes between, I'm not talking like you just had a squabble or argument with a friend. I'm talking great, tragic suffering here. There is an enormous gap that develops between you and the one who caused and brought on that suffering. And a simple like them coming to you and saying, I'm sorry, like it doesn't cover that gap, does it? I mean, it just just doesn't. Something, some kind of action must be done. Something must be done to bridge that gap for us, right? For us to feel like there's some sort of restitution. There's something that has been done to maybe make us more willing to engage and forgive and, and, and reconcile, right? 
It's serious. And do you know why great injustice makes you feel that gap? Because you're made in the image of God. You're made in the image of God. And that's how people made in the image of God experience injustice and evil. Because it's such a serious thing, it can't just be shrugged off. It can't just be shrugged off. Something has to happen. But the truth is, the gap that you and I might experience, even in a situation as tragic as that, is nothing in comparison to the infinite gap that stands between you and I and God because of our sin, because of our rebellion against him, because of our, no, we're not gonna worship you, you made us, whatever, we're gonna be our own gods. And we all do that, all of us sin. There's, there's no innocent person in this room, right? And the gap that stands between you and I and God is infinite, right? A sorry won't cut it. Something has to be done to bridge that gap, to close that gap. There has to be an atonement, right? There has to be something to pay that debt and reconcile us. And the hope of Christmas is you are far worse off than you ever thought you were, but you are far more loved than you ever dared to dream because God In his great love, his incomparable love, he took it upon himself to make that atonement, to bridge that gap, to close that gap and reconcile us to himself. Because God sent his son, the word made flesh, to be born a helpless babe, vulnerable and killable, to come and live for you, for me, the life that we never could. Jesus lived a perfect life, right? You know, we get like one verse about like, you know, Jesus from about like 12 to 30, uh, you know, when the ministry starts, and, and it's really short. But, but think about it. The, the rest of scriptures affirm Jesus was tried and tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. Hebrews tells us that. Yet without sin. Perfect. Right? You got brothers, sisters. I got a brother. He's here. I was not a very good brother. Um, uh, a lot of times, right? Um, I would say, you know, he's not perfect either. Is that fair? <laughs> right? I was a terrible older brother a lot of the time. I was, I was a jerk, right? Jesus had brothers and sisters. Two of them ended up writing books of the Bible to affirm his divinity, to affirm that he's the Christ. His brother James, his brother Jude, right? They didn't necessarily affirm everything initially, but in the end, they're like, he's perfect. He's my Savior. He's my Lord perfect in every way throughout his life. Do you think he endured some mocking from his brothers and sisters growing up? Do you think he endured much more than that? The word became flesh and he lived a sinless life in our place and he died the death that we deserve for our sins in our place to bridge that gap and offer reconciliation to us that if we would turn from our sin and cling to him in faith, the gap is closed. We're at one with God. Again, he endured every temptation we endure. And so when we read from Isaiah this time of year that, that he is our wonderful counselor, right? He, Jesus really is your wonderful counselor. He understands anything that you're going through. He endured all of it and then some, 
right? All the suffering that you can endure, and then some, he endured for you. And so you can go to him. He is truly the wonderful counselor. You need to trust him. You need to go to him with whatever you have. Maybe you're thinking like, ah, but I've prayed to God before, right? I, I have this desperate desire. I have this desperate thing going on in my life. And I prayed to him, and he didn't answer my prayers. He said no. You know what? Jesus understands that too. The night before his death, he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if there's any way to save the world, but... Me not have to go to the cross, right? To do this without suffering that infinite agony. Please let this cup pass from me. And his prayer was denied as well. His prayer was denied. He understands that as well. I mean, he knows more than us, more than we ever will, what it is to be abandoned by God as he was abandoned on the cross. And not like cosmic child abuse, like God the Father was like, I'm done with you, Jesus. But like Jesus went there willingly. In love, he became a man. In love, he stepped out of heaven and laid everything down and went to the cross for you and for me. And willingly, you know, even after that prayer, willingly, he's God. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. You think at any moment, if he didn't want to be there, he couldn't have made it come undone? Absolutely. Willingly in love, he suffered and bled and died for you and for me. You are far more loved than you ever dared to dream you could be. And John makes clear how sure our hope is when we look to Jesus, when we cling to him. Read with me again, verses four and five together. It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness will not overcome it. The victory is won and secure through the finished work of Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection. Right? Darkness will not overcome it. No matter how many mass shootings, how many acts of terrorism, how many, like, just us being rude to one another, all of the the injustice and tragedies in this world. No matter how much, the darkness will not overcome Christ. He is a sure hope. The darkness of sin and death in this fallen, broken world will never overcome the hope that we have in Christ. When you turn from your sin, when you just have that desire to say, I don't want this, I want you, Jesus, I want you. I want to cling to you. At that moment, you join in with the Christmas carols, not just with your voice, but with your life. God and sinners reconciled. God and sinners reconciled. I love this. This was the last verse we sang this morning from Hark the Herald. Hail the heavenly Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life To all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. This is the hope of Christ. This is the hope of Christ for all who see their need for rescue and cling to him in faith. This is our hope. You're far worse off than you ever thought you were. You are far more loved than you ever dared to dream. 
We're going to move into a time as we continue to respond this morning to share in the Lord's Supper, right? And we do this each week to celebrate this hope, this sure hope that we have in Christ because of his life and death on the cross, right? We share in this meal as, as believers, knowing that our hope is sure because that work is finished. That's what he declared as he died on the cross. It is finished. The debt is paid. Your sins have been forgiven when you come to Jesus. And so believers, we we take this time each week to commune with Christ, to to remember and to celebrate his body broken, his his, uh, blood shed for our sins as we share in the bread and the cup. You're invited to come forward as we continue to worship here in a moment to break off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. We offer both juice and wine to take as your conscience leads you. The wine is in the glasses marked with twine. This is a meal that the scriptures tell us is, is reserved for Christians. But let me, let me talk to you in this room if you're not a believer in Christ. Right? This is an opportunity, an invitation to you to take Christ in faith. To respond to the good news of the gospel. That you're far worse off than you thought you were, but you are far more loved than you ever dared to dream. Uh, Pastor Matt will be back here. I'll be back in this corner. We'd love to visit with you, love to pray with you. Uh, but let's continue to worship and sing here. And let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for this time. We thank you for this time to come together and hear from your word. And and I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts to the hope of of your son. I pray that you would move us at this time to really consider you, Lord Jesus. And you'd move people to, to look on you, to think on the accounts of your life the words you said, the things you have done, the accounts of your resurrection, Lord. Would you move us to consider you and then move us to worship you, to cling to you in faith? Lord, would you transform our hearts in that reconciliation with you, not only to just enjoy that with you, but to enjoy that with one another, to forgive and love more freely with one another, to love our city more freely, to serve selflessly, to be your ambassadors who display the love that you have shown us to those in our neighborhoods, in our workplace. Lord Jesus, have your way with us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.